from Trimble Construction, you're listening to the Connected Construction Show, where we connect you to the contractors, owners, designers, engineers, and construction professionals who are finding better ways to work. And now, here's your host, Matt Sprague. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Connected Construction Show. I am your host, Matt Sprague. This week, I am very excited to welcome my guest, Dina Prastos, who is the founder and CEO of Indigo River. Um, I will not do her the injustice of telling you what Indigo River is and what her background is. As always, we start the show uh, of a kind of really just a, a get to know you type portion. So, so, so Dina, first of all, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background and uh, how you got to be where you are today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, so yeah, I'm Dina Prastos. I'm a waterfront architect. I am the founder of Indigo River, which is a climate adaptation studio focused on waterfront solutions. Uh, my background is in architecture, engineering, and construction. I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and traveled a bit in my career and in my academic career, as well as my professional career, um, working in the Middle East, studying in the Northeast, and now finally landing again back in the Northeast, uh, focusing on waterfront architecture and primarily waterfront infrastructure. Um, And so a little bit more details as to my background. In undergrad, I studied architecture. I have a master's in civil engineering. When I first entered the workforce, I started with a heavy self-performed civil contractor working on waterfront infrastructure. Staten Island Ferry Terminal was one of my first projects, kind of working my way up from a field engineer, project engineer, um, through a leadership development program within that uh, kind of mid-sized 300-person firm. I spent about six years in construction before working, you know, on similar heavy infrastructure projects, waterfront included. Uh, At around six, seven years of my career, I pivoted to the design side where I studied um, marine infrastructure and worked on the design side of marine infrastructure projects, things like um, New York City Ferry, all of the ferry landings that have been built here since 2017, um, and other kind of public works infrastructure projects. And I rounded out my architecture experience working for a um, kind of smaller, uh, various types of architecture. Um, but again, my focus was on the waterfront architecture. Um, and so then I kind of saw the opportunity within waterfront infrastructure to open a firm design focused, uh, focused on you know, climate adaptation, but on the waterfront. And so we have about 20 people now ranging in disciplines from engineering, planning and, and architecture. Um, and focusing on different types of waterfront infrastructure projects. So that's things like port facilities, marinas, uh, kind of our edge condition of where land meets water, seawalls, bulkheads, um, you know, wave attenuators, wharfs, keys, and anything where land meets water. And so that's kind of been our focus, and that's been a little bit of my journey. Super interesting. So, so your introduction into the the you know the waterfront infrastructure was. Was it was it more circumstantial that you kind of just were you happened to fall into projects like that and then you recognized the opportunity? Absolutely. I think part of it was contrived in that I was very curious about means and methods of construction. I felt after my academic background um, first, you know, with architecture, I felt very confident in design, but not in kind of the practical, you know, why choose one structural system over another. And so then I studied civil engineering and even with the kind of academic um 
confidence of, all right, I can do a bunch of calcs and they check out on paper. Why, again, what are the, the contractors? Who's putting this together in the field? What are the constraints of the construction? And what is that process? What is that thought process like? And so just kind of out of curiosity and wanting to round out my knowledge base, really did look to start in the construction field. Um, and by chance, yes, my first project was a waterfront project, but I was there for a couple of years and just the amount of, you know, specialized information picked up on a waterfront project, um, you very quickly come to know it as a, you know, nuanced environment um, where, you know, different regulatory requirements, different construction techniques, different means and methods. And so you start to really learn um, kind of the, the opportunities to be specialized within that space. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So um, between our pre-show meeting and today, um, very coincidentally, I got asked twice about, you know, hey, are are ports and harbors really a good business for us to be be focusing in? And I was like, well, interestingly enough, like, <laughs> you know, if, if you just think about climate change alone, uh, and so, so let me back up. We all know that it, specifically in the United States, we have aging infrastructure, period. Waterfront or not. So it, you would make the assumption that the water infrastructure is aging as well. And with climate change, the answer is, yeah, there's going to be a lot of work going to be done uh, in, in that particular air, uh, particular area. So are, are you seeing like a, 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 just a continued demand for your services? Absolutely. And that's also a reflection of kind of national security efforts to maintain and rehabilitate and invest in some of those, you know, port facilities and kind of waterfront infrastructure that you think about how cities were formed historically and why they so many were formed on coasts. Um, and yeah, it comes, you know, straight back to shipping days, but there was um, kind of mentality and philosophy to leverage nature's infrastructure, leverage the waterways, um, you know, before there were cars and, and how that took place and how that shaped our cities. And for a period of time, I would say many cities turned their back on the waterfront and on kind of the maritime use. And now there's this kind of reemergence and re-embracing of the waterfront, whether for recreational needs or um, or for, you know, maritime industry and understanding and leveraging both as opportunities for our cities to have, you know, healthier environments, healthier on an individual level, healthier on a um, kind of more dense level of, you know, how goods are, are shipped and, and spread. Um, and so, it, it's certainly an area and an opportunity. Um, you mentioned, you know, climate change. Absolutely. The waterfront is our most vulnerable typology. The sea levels are rising. There are storm surge. There are, you know, unprecedented, unprecedented um, kind of weather events that looking back, we didn't deal with. Our codes weren't written for, but just understanding where we sit within this space now, and what our opportunities are and what the risks are. Um, there's a tremendous amount of work uh, kind of out there, backlog available and not, frankly, not enough competition within the space for the work that needs to be done. All right, so let's let's start to, um, I'm so curious about the types of projects that you work on. It must be some, some, some really interesting ones as well. So walk us through um, one of your recent projects and you know, you know, kind of explore like what were some of the more pressing or, or pervasive challenges uh, that popped up in, during that project. So Wildfire Studios in Astoria, Queens is a vertical film studio that I always like to kind of share our story of our involvement there because it very organically speaks to the evolution of our company and our services and our skills as well. Uh, so we initially got involved. It's a it's a coastal site. It's in a flood zone, it's a floodplain area. 
um, and Astoria Queens Vertical Film Studio. And we initially got involved to assist with the marine engineering, uh, the permitting thereof. And, you know, we did some analyses as to whether or not uh, recreational access would be feasible. Um, ultimately, it wasn't, but we, you know, we ended up designing the structures for the waterfront, two different typologies. And the scope very quickly kind of opened up into managing the larger resiliency effort for the for the building as well for the entire site. And so this is a site that, as is common in New York City, some of the building sits, you know, almost on the property line. There's not a lot of room around the building. It's low lying. Um, and so we had to look at, you know, multi pronged approach of what that resiliency strategy would be. Um, and so primarily for flood concerns, not, you know, so concerned about heat or or earthquakes or other things in New York, but, you know, looking at all the risks and prioritizing flood um, kind of was, was our strategy. And so what we did was worked with, you know, we're a, a piece of a larger team. There's engineers of record for the building. There's architects of record for the building. There are landscape architects, civil site works, contractors and, and designers. And so really kind of harnessing all of the strengths of the different disciplines bring looked at creating a holistic flood mitigation strategy. And so in part, it was, um, you know, fixed and a, a permanent system. We have different zones that are wet flood proofed and different zones that are dry flood proofed. And so the wet flood proof zones uh, largely are, you know, programmatically um, the, the parking areas or storage areas. And then the, the dry flood proof areas, we had a couple different ways to protect um, whether, you know, floodgates, flood doors or deployable systems. Um, in this case, there, you know, some of the areas that had horizontal room around the building, we're able to put, you know, a flood wall system that took some more horizontal space that requires, you know, human intervention. Other areas of the building where um, you're on a property line, you don't have any horizontal space, we have to, you know, install more permanent solutions. And so it was a kind of very organic growth of our firm to work not only on the waterfront structures, but also on the resiliency strategies to deal with and mitigate the risk around the waterfront. Interesting. So I'm going to go back to the very beginning. What what is meant by a vertical studio? Oh, so the, uh, kind of first of its kind, you can imagine New York City, very dense environment. Um, if you think of the film studios in, you know, Southern California, they're all, you know, warehouse buildings, very flat, very sprawling, very spread out. New York City doesn't have that kind of real estate um, kind of, you know, horizontal room. And so the, the team here, Bjork Ingalls Group, is a lead architect, and they were able to devise a system where the film studios are actually stacked on top of each other. So there are, you know, different studios, and they could be recording production simultaneously, one on top of the other. So there's a lot of, I would imagine that so there's a lot of sound barriers. Yes, uh, and, and, a, and a lot of height also for, you know, all the equipment that's required for film production. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, curious. I remember I, I was reading that, and I'm like, I meant to ask you before. I'm like, what the heck is a vertical studio? I'm like, so anyway, um, back to uh, the topic at hand. So when we talk about regulations, um, I would imagine that we have a aging infrastructure. We probably have a aging or aged uh, regulations. So do you have any hope for, you know, some of the uh, regulation, you know, reshaping and any, any ideas on how that could be improved? So I don't know how much hope I have, but maybe I'll kind of speak to what the landscape is that we navigate. And um, yeah, maybe if I were to have hope where, where I would direct it. Uh, but I, I just by default of being on the waterfront, we're dealing with a lot of different uh, regulatory bodies, a lot of different agencies having jurisdiction over the same space and with, you know, different, sometimes competing motivations. It's a lot to navigate. And so it's not only 
Uh, I mean, many pro projects you'll go through the, you know, this, the local municipality permit, a department of building, get those things. But far before we do that on the waterfront, kind of at 30% design level, we'll put together a joint permit application, which um, in New York, the agencies might be slightly different, but I'll also kind of speak to what they regulate. And, and oftentimes in other states, there are, you know, similar bodies um, that, that regulate the same. And so within New York State, the joint permit application goes to, um, on a state level, to the Department of Environmental Conservation, um, that, you know, they have environmental concerns of, you know, what's going in the water, how is it going in the water, the permanence of it, um, the, the means and methods of constructing it. And so we'll, you know, put together kind of broad strokes design, 30%. Um, make sure that we're equalizing cut and fill and some other things that we know will kind of trigger the review or, or sway them one way or another. Sometimes we'll have a pre-application meeting to do that. At the same time that we put the application into the Department of Environmental Conservation, we'll also put in an application to the federal agency, the Army Corps of Engineers, who then um, you know, takes bits and pieces of that application and they'll send it out to NOAA, they'll send it out to, you know, different agencies, federal agencies to, to do a similar review. And they're sometimes looking at, you know, fish habitat and spawning seasons, all the way to, you know, navigational considerations for the construction of where the barges are located and what the notice to mariners will be. And so um, kind of different, again, different agencies, different uh, motivations. You also go to Department of State and, you know, sometimes if, if the land owned underwater isn't by the same owner as the, you know, the upland property or it might be owned by the state, um, kind of how to navigate that. It'll also go to the Office of General Services. So there are different agencies, again, that kind of have jurisdiction over the same physical area, uh, but with the, the different motivations, different constraints of, you know, what they're regulating. And so as far as a hope, I mean, I think one of the really great things that was done uh, more recently was streamlining that initial permit application so that that joint permit goes to, you know, four agencies at once and you're not putting in four uh, disparate applications, which helps to kind of align. But the the challenge therein is that once it goes out to the four agencies, you're on separate tracks as soon as they start, start responding. Um, and so that's just a lot to coordinate that if one agency says, all right, we're okay with this, but you can't do in-water work from, you know, January to January to September and the other agency comes back and says, oh, this is great, but you can't do in-water work September until November. Well, you have one month to do the in-water work and that's going to be the same in the area with a lot of, you know, competing for contractors to do that work and just kind of the reality of, um, you know, how that unfolds can be challenging to, uh, you know, practically sort. And so that's, you know, and other things, you know, you'll make a change for one agency, you have to make it for the other. Sometimes you can kind of one step forward, two steps back. And so it's just a lot to navigate. And, and that's, you know, so you might also go to National Park Services or Historic Preservation kind of on different levels. And so um, it's an interesting process. It is a heavily regulated area, but being a specialist in the space helps us kind of preempt what those uh, concerns will be and, and make sure that when we're designing, we have those in mind to help steer us so that um, something that happens oftentimes is we'll be brought in kind of midway through a design project when they say, you know, we can't get this permitted. What are we doing wrong? And we look at it and kind of very quickly can see some broad strokes decisions that were made very early on that have, you know, consequences to um, you might never be able to get a permitted. So now we have to kind of backtrack it, backpedal and and get it back in line with what will what can be permitted. And so that ends up being um, kind of embedded in our thought process. Like I said, we have 20 people. The one thing they all do, despite different having different backgrounds, is permit because it's that important for this typology. Yeah, I feel like everything you just said was like I was built. It was like building anxiety. <laughs> <clears throat> that like it's you you know like so I would say like you, you your firm I would say is like a PhD in permitting right and and uh, I wrote down a note here just because one of the products that I work with at, at Trimble 
um, is a permitting op, uh, uh, per permitting automation tool uh, for for cities, towns, municipalities, and whatnot. But what I heard there was the um, interdependent permitting, which is the key, yeah. right? So now, like you said, you had a state agency with local, uh, you know, with, with and then multiple local municipality uh, agencies mm -hmm. that were yeah. that, that are all acting on the same uh, same project. Um, they could all have their own automated permitting, probably do have their own automated uh, permitting. Um, and maybe, the, you know, they're probably not talking to one another. Uh, sure. And that, I mean, you, you also asked about hope within the space. And I think you bring up a really great point with the advance of technology that there certainly is opportunity through, you know, automation AI to streamline that process, or at least, you know, maybe take 80% of, you know, the manual tedious entries that could be, you know, they're binary, they work or they don't, and then really focus for the the regulators on that gray space of what really needs a, you know, human interpretation of the code. Um, and so that's certainly an opportunity, as I, I would say, comes through technology. Yeah. Yeah. So because, yeah, because you would my goodness. Yeah. I told you it's just the, the anxiety that kind of, <laughs> that kind of built up and that, you know, how, how are you? And then everybody's on its own timeline, right? So you can get, yeah. uh, you know, you know, and then I would imagine inspections must be similarly, uh, frustrating. Uh, I wouldn't say frustrated, but there, I mean, as long as I think there's an awareness, it, it depends on who you hire, you know, you get the, the quality of labor that you hire. And so that works, you know, on, on different scales of not only the contractors, but also the consultants. And so, um, I mean, for us, we have individuals that are, you know, designing, but they're also inspecting. And so I, I think having that awareness w when you're designing what the inspector is looking for and um, also the awareness that many of us have worked in construction of, you know, what the contractor is thinking and what they're, you know, how, how they navigate, um, you know, what they need to do. And so that helps us really to empathize with the other, you know, counterparts of making a successful project. So with, with, with such a... Um intricate project, which I would say probably all of your projects are when, when you're interfacing uh, uh, the way that you, that, that, uh, in the environments that you're interfacing with, how important is it? So do you work with like kind of the same contractors or do, is there, you know, or, or is it that you have to kind of bring some contractors along and, co uh, you know, collaborate with them early on? Like how, how, what's that, what's that interaction like? So, I, I mean, for us, I probably 75% of our portfolio are in, you know, projects in the New York Harbor, which we know most of the, the marine contractors, most of the players in this space, but we do a, a fair amount of work outside of New York State, around the country, or in, internationally as well. And so we don't always know the contractor, but there are certain uh, kind of premises that even if we're not sure for a locale, we're not nervous to pick up a phone and call someone and, you know, get a second opinion, get a third opinion, get a fourth opinion. Um, because it, it is so important early on when it can be, you know, two, three extra phone calls at concept that can save the owner, you know, months and millions in construction by not having made those calls. And so um, certainly valuing kind of that front end forethought to to do that, to, you know, when we have the relationships to leverage them, to, you know, continue investing in them when we don't, um, certainly to to kind of bridge the gap and, and try and find a way. Interesting. So, um I love I love hearing about the projects. So yeah, you, you have another story, so, uh, another project, um, you know, so where, where you and your partners were able to use. Um, maybe we'll we'll kind of go on that that innovative technology side. 
Um, so it, you know, kind of highlighting a project that maybe utilize something, something new and interesting. Sure. Um, so kind of switch gears from fixed infrastructure, maybe talk about floating infrastructure. We do a lot of ferry landings and wave attenuators to help manage wave climates. And so not only looking to kind of fortify against wave action, but, but also, um, find a way to kind of harness it. And so, uh, projects, uh, I'll talk about, you know, 115 Marina in Brooklyn, New York is a, is a Marina within Brooklyn Bridge Park. Um, we've worked with their team for I mean, close to a decade now um, on different sides of design and kind of owner's rep and construction management um, to design and build, install a marina that has a softer wave climate than it in, than it used to have. And so the problem in New York Harbor um, first was kind of an awareness around what the design criteria needed to be and what the environmental constraints were. And so looking at New York Harbor and the wave, uh, sorry, the, the ferry traffic, the the vessel traffic, what the wave environment is like, what the wake environment is like. Um, we do have a, a, you know, an engineer diver that can go down and inspect in structures underwater, but part of um, understanding what the environmental conditions are, also understanding that wave climate and what the driving force is that needs to be for the design criteria. And so we'll often go out and put in uh, ADCP acoustic Doppler current profilers in the water to monitor wave action so that we can come up with um, a design to counter it. And so we'll, you know, put these monitors out in the water. Sometimes it's, you know, a week, a month, four months to understand the high traffic season and what those um, kind of currents are and, and what direction they're going and how severe they are. And so that's something that kind of once we have that information, we can start to design a wave attenuator system. And so for 115 uh, Brooklyn Marina, we we actually were not the designers. Um, we formerly worked with the designers very closely, um, but we were the owners rep kind of establishing what that criteria needed to be and what the, the structures, um, you know, how, what the proportions of them would be and what would work to mitigate the wave action and um, kind of sweetener, just New York City construction, there's, you know, tunnels running over, under the attenuator. So even despite, you know, what the optimal attenuator design was, we had to kind of reconfigure and um, reproportion them so that the anchorage systems weren't within the zone of influence for the tunnels underneath. So um, same kind of permitting challenges as, you know, mentioned before, but also kind of layered on with different technical challenges and um, kind of, you know, unique city environment of driving piles over tunnels. It's awesome. That's mm -hmm. underwater drones. I never even thought of it uh, until this, until this one, you know, it's, Drones are so, I, I would say to the, to the lay person, drones are fairly superfluous, right? In terms mm -hmm. of like fun little like things to look at. And, uh, you know, with like, instead of fireworks, they have the zone, uh, uh, you know, drone type things in, in, in the air. Um, but the, you know, from especially like in, in construction and, and things like that, drones have massive, massive oh, yeah. implications, but I never thought about it underwater. <laughs> oh yeah. So the, the monitors that we sent weren't actually drones, but we do fly underwater drones a lot just to get into spaces where maybe our diver can't, it's too small, um, or to record footage so that we don't have to, you know, go down with a camera ourselves and, and record it. And so it is, um, incredibly useful tool and yeah, technology is rapidly evolving and, uh, in many ways kind of giving us more, more tools and more information than we've had before. That's awesome. All right. So we got our hot take question. Um, so this is a um, future of the of your industry type of question. So the does the future of architecture uh, belong to the generalist 
or as specialists? So for successful as an industry, I will absolutely say specialist. Um, and the reason I say that is if we look at other, other professional service industries, we look at the medical profession, we look at all the specialties that have evolved there and how that's allowed us um, kind of a society to advance and, and be better, um, you know, within our, within these specialties and, and understand more. And then we look at engineering, you know, very similar, very, you know, closely tied to the architecture profession. Can you imagine if we did not have specialty disciplines within engineering, if everyone was just, you know, an engineer, no mechanical, no civil, no electrical, just engineers. Um, and so to me, it's very, and again, given my kind of my background, my focus and my career, focusing on something that is specialized, it seems very obvious to me and, and kind of important to me that we do begin to embrace different specialties within architecture. And I think one of the challenges that the profession has had is um, not willing to kind of relinquish the, the generalist role that, yeah, we are the conductor of the symphony in, in many projects, kind of between the engineers, between the owners, right, between the consultants, uh, between the contractors, kind of understanding all the different languages. But I don't, to me, becoming a specialist, for example, like a waterfront architect, to me, that's not relinquishing anything. I'm still very much the, the conductor of, um, you know, the, the, the interface, the individuals that I'm interfacing with, but within a specialized area of focus. And so that I am able to go much deeper within, you know, waterfront architecture and what that means and waterfront infrastructure. And I certainly believe there's an importance just, um, you know, the architect's credo is, you know, protecting the health, safety and welfare of the public and the built environment that can happen in many different forms, not just buildings. And so, um, and even within buildings, I mean, there are different types of programmatic specialties, whether in healthcare, you know, there's a lot of research done, you know, what the environment does to a person's health that they're recovering. Um, and so being able to kind of specialize more deeply in those areas, I think is a, a tremendous opportunity, not only for the profession, but more so for the public to benefit from. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. This was a, a, a fun conversation. Um, an exploration of an area that up until three weeks ago, when I first met you, um, I, I never really under, uh, I re even thought of it existing, but it's kind of like, uh, yeah, oh my gosh, like what an important part of, of our world uh, that, that you're, you're helping provide. So thank you for sharing your stories with us. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure to be here. And everybody out there listening, watching, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, and as always, until next time, let's stay connected. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Connected Construction Show. For more information, visit us at connectedconstructionshow.com.